0: You're listening to the Season 2 finale of IBSC Exploring Boys' Education, a regular podcast in which we speak about the key issues facing boys in boys' schools. I'm your host, Bruce Collins. What a season this has been, not only for the podcast, but for all of us around the world who have faced continued disruption to life as we once knew it. It's been another difficult 12 months for sure, but in the midst of this, I'm reminded of the interactions I've had with member schools and individuals from our member schools. These interactions have reminded me that despite the continued physical and social distance we've had to observe, the relational connections between IBSC schools and colleagues remain strong. To close off the second season of the podcast, I've decided to reflect a little on the many conversations we've hosted in the last year. The important themes that have emerged on many Exploring Boys Education episodes this season are reflected in the stories we're hearing from boys' schools everywhere. Around the world, boys' schools are wrestling with what it means to equip boys to be good people and to live with kindness and empathy while learning to be resilient and make a difference in the world. Boys' schools are faced with the challenge of developing their students into responsible sexual citizens who embrace healthy relationships and respect for others. Developing a healthy sense of masculinity is a big part of this journey with boys, helping them to understand and connect with their emotional lives. Belonging also continues to be a key area of focus for IBSC and our member schools, particularly against the backdrop of some of the injustices we see playing out around us. As a result, boys' schools need to be places of belonging where every boy can feel like his presence and voice matter. As we face uncertain times, we've also been reminded of the importance of being intentional about boys' well-being and mental health and developing pastoral care programs in our schools that support the boys in our care. With these thoughts in mind, let's reflect, as I said before, on some of the important conversations we've had this year about the issues that are front of mind for teachers and leaders in boys' schools. In June 2020, Dr Ada Sinekor published her ibsc sponsored research report on responsible sexual citizenship in today's world, with a particular focus on the challenges facing boys. In Ada's contribution to our online class, Based on her research, she shared a little about the importance of this work.
1: When we think about citizenship, right, and good citizenship, it means kind of um, behaving in ways that are socially responsible, right? Like we have uh, social and ethical responsibilities in which ways we, we interact with each other. And when we think about it from the perspective of of social relationships and sexual sexual relationships, uh, we wanna make sure that how we teach and understand these topics are inclusive, they're non-discriminatory, um, and that they highlight the social aspects of romantic relationships and sexual attraction versus strictly the clinical um, sexual aspects of the relationships. So. Um, caring and compassion and empathy are all part of a sexual citizenship framework um, as well as making sure we attend to um, sexual, sex, diverse sexualities um, and and the diversity of genders so that um so that, every, that, that the dialogue is inclusive. So everybody can see themselves or their family or the people they know in these conversations. And it's not just about um, the clinical aspect of having sexual relations or, or sexual health or those kinds of things, but a much bigger discussion about how sexuality affects our, us in intimate ways every day. In our life, in all of our interactions.
0: In our first episode of Season 2, we had an enlightening conversation with Justine Ang Fonte, who also highlights the importance of good sex ed programs for boys of all ages. Much of what Justine shared aligns with the insights from Ada Sinecor's research
2: starting as early as possible is best, right? And so when I say we're starting earlier, we're not talking to them about porn in, you know, when they're six years old. We're talking to them first about their body. What is your body's function? What are the parts of, the, your, of your body? And how do those parts function? So I think you know, first and foremost, we need to normalize body parts by using medically accurate terms to refer to all of them. Um, so that they don't default to sexualizing those body parts or stigmatizing them or seeing them as dirty. So first and foremost, just language, making sure they understand and know, uh, what their body parts are, how to name them and label them, um, and what they do. Um, second is talking about, you know, the spectrum of sexual identities. There is a, uh, you know, I'm sure in your podcast, the words toxic masculinity have come up. Before and you know, a, a part of that is recognizing that that patriarchal you know um, uh, construct is really coming from this idea that boys have to be one type of identity, and so I think having them see that they can express themselves in all sorts of ways um, and understand who they are in all sorts of ways um, already gives them some of that freedom and liberty to to feel safe if. They are feeling, um, you know, that they are interested in other boys, if they love other boys, if they want to express themselves in more feminine ways. Um, but if when we restrict them, you know, it doesn't mean that it goes away. It means that we are repressing this and it's going to come out in, in, in other ways and in many ways, sometimes violently, right? And so we want to make sure that we are, um, really validating and affirming All of the different identities that they could they could um, they could feel and be. Um, And I think part of that, too, is, um, you know, exercising empathy that even if they aren't, you know, born with certain anatomy, they are learning and empathizing with things like menstruation. They are understanding what biology looks like for people in other world, uh, you know, in, in the rest of the world. Um, so that they can understand how to interact with those bodies, you know, in the future um, or in their current relationships. And it's important that the adults in the room that are teaching them these things, whether it's coming from an English class and the books they're reading, because they're reading books from a lesbian author, you know, or they're in a, you know, writing reflection around their identity and how it, you know, um, is aligned or parallel to the character um, and, you know, about all their different, you know, intersectional identities, we're giving them um, adults in the room that are of all genders, of all, you know, identities, so that they can see that these are, um, that this representation means that they can live in, in, in those identities as well, one day or while they're already, you know, a growing young person. So there's a lot of things that we can do that have nothing to do with pornography that will actually mm-hmm. help them to feel more secure, safe, and free to be who they are. And so that when they see these really extreme images, they're able to see, okay, that could be one way that somebody might want to you know, express themselves or interact with another person. But that isn't the strict... Um, you know, template that I'm supposed to follow because there are many ways that I could be a man. There are many ways I can be a boy. And there are many ways that um, I can interact with another person.
0: In many conversations I had with experts, it became increasingly clear that for many boys, pornography has become a primary source of sex ed. In a conversation I had with Dr. Shimmy Kang about technology, she highlights the challenge of boys' access to pornography.
3: The research on this is shocking. Um, It's tragic. Uh, I think something like 58% of kids feel uh, internet porn is, porn is realistic. Um, And at the same time, we're seeing uh, pornography being very different than a generation ago, it's much more vivid, it's live sometimes. Um, Once you see something, you cannot unsee it. Um, I have seen um, in incidences of trauma, people who have literal flashbacks from uh, porn that they accidentally saw or purposely saw and young boys in particular are being introduced to it early, um, either again, accidentally or on purpose. And this is something that I don't think we fully understand the long term consequences. Uh, And I have men in my practice who are in their 30s and 40s, even, uh, who are interfering with their intimate relationships, their sexual function, their sense of self esteem and connection. Uh, We're seeing um, even countries like Japan, um, you know, having to incentivize young men to go and meet real women, um, because you know, they are online with cam girls and on porn, and their birth rates are dropping.
0: Another important consideration our experts highlighted about responsible sexual citizenship is boys' understanding of consent. Peggy Orenstein, author of Boys and Sex, spoke to us about what she heard from the boys she interviewed about their understanding of consent.
4: On one hand, of course, they have, they have, um, boys have learned uh, a new definition. Um, but it's one thing to understand that theoretically, and it's another thing when they get in the room with somebody. Um, And so they were all, you know, all the boys that I spoke with were aware of the ways that um, definitions of consent had changed, but they, and and a lot of them were trying to think about, you know, some of them were uncomfortable. They would, they would tell me, you know, they had done things and they weren't sure whether they had been consensual or they knew they weren't consensual, but didn't know, what to do about that and how to make amends for that or, or be accountable for that. Um, and, you know, the, there are some real gaps and um, real ways that our lessons on consent, I think, can be undermined by um, the socialization that boys get around sex and, and particularly around media culture. And again, I know we're going to talk about pornography in a minute, but that's one aspect, but it's certainly not the only one. Um, But it leads boys to um, see consent, for instance, consent to one act as consent to everything. So kissing on the dance floor as meaning consent to intercourse, or they're prone to believing the place where something happens constitutes consent. So um, there's a gap in research between the percentage of guys in college who believe that a girl asking you back to their dorm room is consent to intercourse versus the percentage of their female classmates who agree to that statement. Um, and you know, even when they do understand consent, it turns out that that understanding can be sort of elastic. So uh, a sociologist, Nicole Badera, um, talked to college guys and she asked them to define consent. And just like the guys I talked to, they all could. And then she had them describe their last encounter in a hookup and in a relationship. And it turned out that when their actions didn't fit their definitions, they expanded the definition rather than question their actions, even to the point where they would reframe behavior that met the standard of assault as consensual. And I think that in a way that is because of the way that we think about guys who assault, that anybody who engages in sexual misconduct is a monster. So if you engage in sexual misconduct, you must be a monster and nobody wants to believe that about themselves. So if good guys don't assault and you're a good guy, then whatever you did can't be assault, no matter you know, what kind of gymnastics you have to go through internally to make that so. Um, but that can really blind us and blind boys to the fact that a good guy can do a bad thing.
0: Justine Angfonte also highlighted the connection between porn and boys' understanding of consent.
2: When you're experienced with um, pleasure on demand, you don't understand what rejection is like. So in the real world, when somebody says, mm, I, I just don't feel like making out with you or no, I, I'm not ready to have sex with you. That is something they have never practiced because when they are horny, they are used to be a- being able to get what they want. And so already you have that first problem right there. the The other aspect too is that porn, as it becomes your regular form of, you know, um, se- sexual experiences, it doesn't prepare you to think about how the other person could be feeling in that moment because of what you're doing. It's a very one-way street. And sex is meant to be an exchange, a dialogue, a relationship that really fosters intimacy. And you can't have that exchange or that dialogue if you don't understand that a consensual relationship involves more than one person. And so it's hard to practice consent when it's never been modeled for you and it's in an, and sex is in an environment where it's always been a one way street. And so there becomes this, you know, entitlement that I get to have what I want because I want it because I've been able to do that every time I press play. And so when you have a real person there, then you don't really know how to navigate that conversation well. And this really um, impacts their understanding of what a relationship is, you know, how to relate to somebody else. It becomes this, you know, solo act that um, you, you become socialized to believing you can, you know, experience without needing any, um, any conversation.
0: Clearly, responsible sexual citizenship is a priority for many boys' schools. I would encourage listeners to access Ada Cynical's research report in the IBSC member center and consider signing up for our IBSC Responsible Sexual Citizenship online class, which is based on Ada's research. I asked my co-facilitator on this class, Ashley Wagoner from Selwyn House School in Canada, to share a little of her experience of the IBSC Responsible Sexual Citizenship class.
5: The big thing is people what the people who take the course are really interested in this content obviously um but they're not sure what to do if they find a little bit of resistance or if they get a negative email and uh, the big thing that you and i've talked to them about is that this work isn't really about um is this content is this content right or wrong or is this about morality it's not really about judgment what this is is that teachers need to be the people who are disseminating this information because we're required to be accurate honest, do some research. And if we don't give this information, we know, we know the boys are gonna find it from the internet or their friends. Maybe they'll find a really great website. Maybe they'll have a really informed friend, but chances are they're gonna get this information in a really, um, well, it's kind of roll of the dice. So that's the biggest thing I think is how do you communicate that to parents that as teachers, we just wanna provide information.
0: If you were to give a little encouragement, why should people sign up for this class?
5: Oh, my goodness. I can think of so many reasons, even just for you and I. It gets the ball rolling so that on our personal time, we're doing so much more research about this work. So we just become so much more informed as parents and as educators. The other big thing is I think I want to kind of pitch to elementary school teachers as well to take this course because yes, it's important to talk about this grade six to 12. But when you really think about it, the foundations of this work starting kindergarten, grade one, grade two, all the way up. So I think if you're even on the fence about doing some of this work, um, taking a course like this will give you other educators who are already who are, are starting the process, as well as access to Ada's research and you and I who are able to you know support them to get the ball rolling
0: the ibsc responsible sexual citizenship class runs again from february 7th to march 7th 2022 see the ibsc website for more details over the course of the last year or so it's been a real privilege to have spoken several times to dr derek gay about the concept of belonging and why it is important for boys schools to be involved in the deep heartwork work of diversity equity and inclusion I was able to explore this idea of belonging with Dr. Gay, who contributed to many of our programs in 2020 and 2021.
6: I understand inclusion, as you framed it already, the sense of belonging and the sense of, of connectedness that's very different to, um, but somewhat related to diversity, which is why we use the terms together. Diversity meaning differences and inclusion being that sense of belonging. And when we're talking about racial inclusion, we have to think about not only those who um, who are uh, you know we call them states people of color non whites um, that that also includes whiteness when we 're thinking about um, just constructs around race and how whiteness informs this analysis as well, so with that in mind, I would say when I think about inclusion and what what that looks like, I think about um, this school, where you know every student and every constituent is able to flourish, whatever that means, you know that's very individualized, but that who they are and their racial um, background doesn't preclude them from access, doesn't create barriers, doesn't create um, microaggressions. So ways in which either subtle or or more explicit ways that they are message that they are somehow different in a negative way and that who they are is something that they're going to have to manage in order to uh you know to achieve be it uh, educational attainment or or social inclusion i think of a place where you know we talk about this idea of mirrors and windows that students are able to see themselves that's the mirror um, and that affirmation, that validation, and they have the window where they're able to connect with others in meaningful ways as well. <clears throat> so I think about how we can leverage the curriculum and that all students, you are talking about racial inclusion, see themselves and see the contributions that people who look like them have made to our school, to our city, to our country, to our society. You know, in my work, we say, if you don't see it, you can't be it. So if in my realm of possibility that I've never been exposed to a scientist who looks like me or to a mathematician who looks like me or to a teacher who looks like me, um, then it's not even part of my conceptual framework. I can't create a vision around how I might realize um, this aspiration of being that because it's, it's, it's just not part of who I am and you think about sort of how in the in the the window part of that also that if i as a white student for example if we're talking about race have only seen people of color as a single story to to borrow the metaphor from uh, chimamanda adichie if i've only seen them as as, uh, as 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 the the problem to be solved is if i've only seen them in uh custodial roles and there's dignity in all in all work, certainly, um, and that everyone should be able to see themselves in the full range of humanity, then it's difficult for me to see them as anything else. If I've only seen the same image of one group over and over, that is, in fact, what they become. In its ongoing pursuit to build and promote diverse global learning
0: communities while endorsing the inherent value and dignity of each person, IBSC established and resourced a diverse global task force that is providing strategic longitudinal oversight as we seek to build anti-racist schools that embrace all intersectionalities of each boy's identity and create greater access and care for boys of colour within member schools worldwide. Headed up by Jack Pennell, one of the highlights of the work of the task force was to assemble a global boys' online forum, which included boys from 17 IBSC member schools. It was a privilege to host the conversation with Jack Pinnell, Laurie Hamilton Durbin, and Jakes Fredericks, all members of the task force, to speak about the importance of this work in boys' schools.
7: I've never worked with a group of people who are so amazing, stunning, stunning, in their uh, engagement with this work and, and 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 like overseeing and stewarding something different um within the IBSC I, I i'll say this again the IBSC is one of the few organizations i know that's global in nature but we feel like a community of people within that globalism and so i think that's a rare opportunity to uh produce amazing change in, in our given contexts and countries and nations. Uh, and I'm just beyond excited for the work we're about to do and to share with you the work that we are doing and to share with you um, actionable steps that we all should take together.
8: I think I'd say um, every step matters and the pace that's right for every school has to be determined by that school community's leaders. but. Uh, It takes courage. It's complex work, but it doesn't have to be done in isolation. You know, find colleagues like these wonderful men here and connect and share ideas and uh, keep in mind that overarching purpose of helping to make the world a better place. And that can make the challenge, you know, inspirational instead. And certainly, I feel a great sense of humility journeying through this, uh, but being on the path in and of itself is fantastic.
9: Most probably for me, Bruce, it's um, saying to everybody out there that the work that we are currently engaging in is messy. It is complex. It is frustrating. Um, but for me, the the joy of the work is wrapped up in the statement that says um. You can't criticize if you're not in the arena. So get into the arena um, because you can't criticize or or speak about something if you're not in the arena. The dust and and dirt has to sit on your face and on your hands. So get involved, help plant those seeds and help grow that garden that we all want to see, which is our boys succeeding and becoming good men.
0: In the first of our exploring boys schools features, I was able to speak to Greg Schneider about Belmont Hill School's action plan for community and diversity. Greg shared some sage advice for schools engaging in these conversations about belonging.
10: Part of the focus of our work, whether we've been talking about students or faculty or parents has been all voices are matter, you know, matter at our school and the conversation is richer and better when we're willing to have our opinions shifted, you know, over time. I think a big point of emphasis for me, both with the adults and the boys is the difference between dialogue and debate, you know, that I think schools are historically quite strong as we have been on creating debaters, you know, who can argue an opinion or write a paper and give evidence and um, do their best to persuade, you know, dialogue, to me is much more about having a fundamental openness that allows one to be shifted through conversation, you know, and that flexibility as opposed to just being, you know, competitive, um, I think is really, really important. And there's a role for both clearly with our boys, but that's, that's kind of another mantra that I've been holding out there as um, this notion that we need to be able to have kids who can engage in dialogue, not just debate.
0: As I listened again to these conversations, I was reminded of the robust and important discussions IBSC members have been having in our new Boys and Belonging online class. Kim Hudson from St. Christopher's School in the United States co-facilitates this class for us, and I asked her to share some reflections from her experience of the class.
8: Really, I think it's an amazing opportunity for educators to connect around a topic that is really near and dear to everyone. Always, but especially at this really critical moment in our, in our history. Um, you know, a couple things that struck me about, um, working with educators on this class is first and foremost that folks have the heart for this work. Um, We know that this work is challenging in a number of ways. Um, It forces us to reflect on our own experiences, how we have formed the perspectives that we have, what's really shaped us. Um, And so the work is hard. Um, The work requires vulnerability, and that is something that's been expressed by the educators in the class. Um, But I think coming back to it, Folks come to the class, they come to this work, they come to working with young people because they have the heart for it. And so it's all about wanting to know and love our boys and know and love our colleagues and families um, in a way that perhaps we haven't before. So that's been a really wonderful thing to see. Um, Secondly, I I would say that I'm really excited by the work that's going on in boys schools around the world, um, the innovation and, and programming and ideas um, that, that are coming out of schools um, of all shapes and sizes um, to, to really better understand what it means to help boys belong is very exciting. Um, and I think there's great strength in sharing our ideas and sharing what's going on in our respective schools. Um, I also would say, um, in working with, with lots of folks, no one has the answer. There is not one answer. Um, the answers in terms of helping boys feel a sense of belonging really need to be reflective of each school's community and culture. And so there is not at all a one size fits all approach. Um, but I do believe that there is, is a great, um, a great heart for the work, there's great innovation going on um, and we can only get stronger by sharing what's going on in our schools.
0: The IBSC Boys and Belonging online class runs again from October 18 to November 15, 2021. Again, see the IBSC website for more details. Now, more than ever, the mental health of boys in our schools is of paramount importance, especially with the added strain of a global pandemic. Early on in this season of Exploring Boys Education, Natasha Devon, a respected voice on teenage mental health in the UK, shared her insights with us about this important topic.
11: What I'm about to talk about, it is based on generalizations, and this won't be true of every boy or young man. But um, generally speaking, when we say that there is therapeutic value in talking, that's not actually strictly true. There's therapeutic value in connection. So if you talk to somebody who really listens and gets you and doesn't judge you, then it does improve brain chemistry. But that's not the only way to get connection. You can get that sense of connection just being with a group of people who, um, where you feel completely comfortable and you can be yourself or through doing a shared activity. So what I've seen is, whereas the girls that I work with are saying, I feel this, I feel that. The boys that I work with are saying, I cannot wait for the gyms to reopen or I can't wait to play rugby again or football or to rehearse, be able to rehearse with my band again. And they're actually, they're saying the same thing because it's these shared activities for so many young people, particularly boys, that are propping up their mental health. You know, resilience, I I had a therapist describe it to me brilliantly. The definition of resilience is how many meaningful connections you have in your life. And that can come from extracurricular activities as well as from people that you have a close relationship with and you feel that you can talk to. And there's a, a brilliant, Uh, educator called Maggie McDonnell. Um, You can find out about her if you look her up on YouTube. But she she won teacher of the year in 2016. And she went to an an area uh, called Saluit, which is in Nunavik in in Canada, which is a kind of colonized area of Canada. And it's really, really cold. It's like the Arctic or the Antarctic. I always get them mixed up, but whichever. And um, there's a huge problem there with drug addiction and suicide, particularly amongst the young men. And she went in there and completely transformed the whole community through her work in the school and It was through things like arts based projects um, and physical activity and it 's amazing if there 's a, a YouTube video that you can find that just sort of summarizes her work, but for me there 's so much transferable wisdom there, so I would say um you know for educators going back into Uh, a classroom environment, don't assume that what a young person needs is for you to sit down opposite them and look them in the eye and say, unburden yourself. Actually, I I think what they need is to feel part of a community and and a team again.
0: In a similar vein, Tim Jarvis from Michael House in South Africa shared some of the research that underpins their approach to the pastoral care of boys.
9: Essentially what what the... um American Psychological Association was sort of was saying in producing their report is that they're recognizing that boys don't ask for help and they they don't want to receive help in the same way that perhaps women or girls would. Um, it, it can be off-putting for them to talk a lot around feelings and, and to openly sort of display vulnerability just because and, and and in and in their words of the sort of rigid gender expectations um that there are on on men and boys about about how they should manage emotional pain it seems like there's a script uh, that goes out there for for sort of all men on that okay this is how you do pain um that, that we we get given the script to to follow and um you know going going voluntarily to go and ask for help from a psychologist and talking about your feelings for uh, the prescribed 50 minutes is probably not what most um, men and certainly boys are going to are going to want to do so 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 really, the report was an acknowledgement of that. they actually then had ten um ten sort of different points around um you know about how how psychologists in particular can can adapt their their practice and things to be aware of but but point nine was the one that sort of grabbed my attention, which was um to build promote build and promote gender sensitive support for for boys. And um, specifically within that, that they, they mentioned some some things for boys might be um, shorter sessions, for example. Um, informal, um, informal sessions and not necessarily sort of sitting down um, uh, sort of face-to-face, maybe using activities, going for walks, uh, you know, playing some pool, you know, those they didn't, they didn't mention those specifically, but that's, I assume that's the sort of thing they're referring to. Um, having some fun and using some humor. Um, even some self-disclosure, which uh, which um, counsellors and psychologists will be aware that sometimes you're sort of trained not to, not to sort of like disclose your own personal um, life, and and then, and then um, you know working with groups as as well, and uh, that was that that particular point around around groups was backed by the the work at the the University of Sussex, where where um, you know bringing a group of boys in for like a development session. Um, as opposed to a support session, you know where there is some food, you know it just it just frames frames it um a little bit more comfortably for boys i suppose i suppose it 's about pandering to their egos a little bit okay you 're not here for help um you're, you're here you 're here for some development as a, as a sort of group as a group together it makes it more palatable for for men.
0: It was also wonderful to hear from Bradley Fenner, headmaster of Prince Alfred College in Australia, about the programs he and his team have in place to support boys. Bradley reminded us again of the long-term impact of the support we show to boys in our care.
12: What we're doing pastorally is is a long-term project and the the benefits and the outcomes will in many cases only be seen somewhere down the track. And that has certainly come home to me on a number of occasions. I recall once bumping into the old an old boy at the school that I was at. He was quite a few years out of school and uh, he'd been a boarder there and I asked him who his housemaster was and he told me and I said, well, so how did you get on with your housemaster? And the, the fellow said, terrible. He said, we fought like cat and dog all the way through. And he said, and you know, looking back on it now, he was right. So quite often it's only with, uh, with maturity that you come to understand some of the lessons that people were were trying to teach you. Um, I've certainly, I'm just now getting near the end of my career, but I have been contacted a couple of times recently by students who have talked about their, um, uh, the experiences that they had and were very appreciative and that they, again, in their maturity could see the benefit of the lessons and these are now the values that, that they live by. And that is why it is so important that we are values-driven
0: in Many of our guests this season also spoke of the role boys' schools can play in shaping a new, more healthy and positive masculinity in boys who attend our schools. Peggy Orenstein clearly framed the issue by highlighting that traditional masculinity is limiting boys. She also highlighted the importance of focusing on positive masculinity when engaging with boys.
4: One thing that was really uh, amazing to me was that, of course, they, you know, things had changed for them, right? I mean, they, they were more, um, they, they saw girls comp- very differently probably than than previous generations as, as being entitled to leadership or entitled to their place in the classrooms or, you know, their place in the playing field. But they also still held on to these um, really conventional ideas. And when I would ask them to describe the ideal guy it was like they were in 1955, all of a sudden, they'd be like, you know, aggressive, you know, aggression, dominance, um, sexist status seeking, um, all these different things. And um, when I would talk to boys, um, they would routinely say that they felt denied the full spectrum of human expression, whether it was by their male peers or girlfriends or media or coaches. Or parents, you know, 60% of boys said in a national survey in the U.S. that parents were the main source of restrictive gender messages. And while, you know, there were a few guys who would say things like, my dad told me, you know, don't be a little bitch or man up. But most of them said that their dad, that, you know, one guy said to me, you know, my dad was not, uh, I didn't learn, you know, he, he wasn't homophobic, he wasn't sexist. I do not learn that toxic masculinity from him, but I did learn the emotionally stunted side of masculinity because he never showed emotion. He was more of a sigh and walk away kind of guy uh, than somebody who would talk to you about how you were feeling or what was going on. And he said, I learned how to not have conversations from him. And, you know, the implication, I mean, there's some rewards. We have to acknowledge there are rewards for following the conventional masculine script, but we also know that guys who adhere to those norms are not only more likely to harass and bully, um, but more likely themselves to be victims of verbal or physical abuse, more prone to binge drinking, risky sexual behavior, getting in car accidents. They're less happy than other men and and boys. Uh, They have higher depression rates, fewer friends. So there's real consequences, real negative consequences to hanging on to those masculine norms too often right now, when we're talking about boys and masculinity, we really skew negative. And so that's why I kind of alluded earlier to the idea that I don't like using the word the phrase toxic masculinity. Um, I think it was a great diagnostic tool. I think it is a great diagnostic tool. but it's so but it, it, it makes boys defensive and it indicates that who they are in this kind of immutable way, is toxic. And, and so what can we think of that is a generative masculinity that encourages boys to connect, that encourages them to hang on to emotional expression, that encourages them to, you know, one of the things that I found with boys that kind of broke my heart a little bit, um, was that on an individual level, they would always tell me that what they really wanted was like, you know, to be in love, to, to have a, a girlfriend, a dating partner, um, you know, or a boyfriend, if the case may be, um, that that they felt um, had their back, that they uh, loved, that cared for them, that they cared for. But they felt that that was unique to them. Every single one of them would say, "Well, I'm not like other guys, right? I w- I would really like to, you know, I'm I'm a relationship guy, but you're not allowed to be that." And so, to see that kind of denial of their capacity to love, you know, how how do we help boys? hang on to that, you know, how do, you know, and and I think some of it is with, with little boys um, making sure we name their emotions. Um, I, you know, I always feel like with, with the, with the youngest boys particularly, but even older boys um, to be able to say, because they so often would say to me that um, the only emotions they felt they were allowed were happiness and anger. So, um, and they weren't wrong. I mean, there's a lot of research that shows that that really is the only emotions that boys are allowed. So, you know, being able to say, wow, you know, that, that, that's fr- that seems like you're frustrated. It seems like uh, you're really sad about that. Um, that seems like, wow, that was a real betrayal by that person. Or, you know, boy, you know, just like expanding the repertoire and the vocabulary, um, particularly in the younger years, is uh, I think one of the biggest services that we can do for boys.
0: In one of our latest episodes, Dr. Ray Swan from Brighton Grammar School's Crowther Centre shared their thinking about positive masculinity.
13: I think probably the simplest way to, to, to understand it um, is firstly if you go to someone like uh, dr Matt Engel Carlson uh, who's based at the Center for men and boys at Fullerton and he probably around fifteen years ago took a strength based approach to counseling and so he took things that were identified as kind of male traits and then he looked at those in well how do we see that as a you know as a, in a, in a strength based way not in a in a maladaptive way so to speak so something like stoicism you know when is that a good thing you know how do we use that as a way to to sort of unpack, you know, what's going on. So I think in its, in its broader sense, it's about taking a strength-based approach to how we how we how we enact our own sense of gender, if, I, if that makes sense. But then there's really a couple of parts to it. There's um, there's knowing. So how do we know stuff? Like how do we know about good ways to be? And and in that, I think you know our boys' schools are full of rich stories, you know, and and myths and history and dramas, all about you know great ways to be. As a human being um, and so there's the knowing piece and then there's the being piece um, and within that you know how do we how do we be and when we talk about the being um, there's, there's really three key elements to being and, and Ross has probably touched on, on one of them already which is a really important one and that is that we are connected and so when we talk about being connected it's about relationships it's about um, you know being connected to our feelings and our experience of ourselves. So that's the first thing is connected. The second is about being authentic, and authenticity, you know, relates to, um, you know, really our our being comfortable in our own skin, you know. And we talk about things about values, and again, a lot of this stuff, a lot of the schools are doing, but in terms of, I guess, making it more intentional and a bit more visible has been a, a really important part of our journey, at least. And the third area is just about being motivated, you know. This idea it's a, it's a key driver. In who we are and I think again when we think about the stories that we that we all know and love and that we often share with our our boys um, this you know actually uh, being motivated in terms of being self-determined you know going out to do good things and do good works um, is also a really important part of you know having an embodied masculinity that, that is positive.
0: Lastly author of Better Boys Better Men Andrew Reiner who will be leading an IBSC virtual regional event later this year Highlighted the importance of creating emotional safety in boys' schools as a tool to unlock a new masculinity.
7: What I've noticed that a lot of boys' schools do, and it's extremely well intentioned, is that the, there'll be conversations once a week, um, usually about topics that a lot of extremely well intentioned teachers and administrators think that the boys should really be talking about. So, they, for instance, they you know they might they might bring up things um, that that they think that the boys, you know, really need to be thinking about. But one of the things that I feel like that is a little bit too much for a lot of schools or they think is too much for them is talking about, is number one, talking about the things that really matter to the boys or at least talking about the perspectives that are important to the boys because a lot of times in the conversations, very well intentionally, um, a lot of um, educators and administrators well, want there to be a certain perspective that they want the boys to have on certain topics. And that I completely get, believe me. As an educator, as a parent, I completely, completely understand that. The problem with that is that the boys see through that. And what the boys feel is, that's all well and good, and you're shoving that down my throat, but I don't feel like I really have a place that I can really air my own thoughts and feelings in this, let alone my questions. And so one of the things I feel like we have to do is create this safe space for boys where when we do have conversations, there needs to be a place where there is first and foremost curiosity, where there is questioning and questions about questions, and then places of tolerance without judgment or feeling that the boys can't have a certain perspective, because that's the only way we're going to really move things forward. But the other thing that I think is really important, Bruce, is that I think that we really need to teach these boys, you know, in these kinds of, uh, either to create the classes or use the ones that already exist to create spaces that are going to emulate what is happening in a lot of men's groups. And in a lot of men's groups, um, you know, around the world now, and they've been big in the States for, you know, off and on for 20 or 30 years, but they're really kind of taking on a new life force again, which I'm glad to see. What happens in a lot of these men's groups is that you will get um, a circle, and I want to talk in a moment about a program um, that I observed in Chicago called Becoming a Man (BAM), which is which is in schools and is a great program for this, where boys are sitting in circles, and the facilitator, whoever the adult is that's leading this, has the boys going through a very prescribed way of beginning where they go around the circle and they've got to take turns and in programs like becoming a man, which, which, which occurs in a lot of Chicago public schools. Um, they'll start out talking about how are you doing physically? And the boys have to talk about how they're feeling physically. How are you doing mentally? How, where, what space are you in mentally? Where are you spiritually? And the boys I've learned early in, in the, in the course of the course, what all these things mean. So they know how to answer them. How are you doing academically? How are you really doing academically? and so these are all the the fronts that they're hitting are all the poor all are all the the aspects of these boys' lives and one of the things that happens is that as these boys sit in the circle is that they really have to they have to really pony up honest answers they can't They can't sit there and respond with these monosyllabic answers fine or good or great or not or you know or bad. They have to really unpack it a little bit more. The facilitator leans into them to do that. But then what happens is that when you create this container, and that's what in a lot of men's groups they call it, which I think is a great word, when you create this safe space or this container, the other some of the sometimes the other boys in the group will kind of support them and encourage them. Well come on, you know, you know, give us a little bit more than just that one word answer. That alone is a really important dynamic right there, which I'll get to in just a second. But what happens is that these boys are learning how to access and process and articulate their deeper emotional lives. They're learning to get beyond beyond a lot of the things that are sanctioned in our culture, right? The frustration and the anger. They're learning to get to the tails at the core of a lot of their feelings and getting away from just the sanctioned behaviors that are acceptable. They're getting to the deeper deeper roots of what it is that they really feel.
0: The snippets you've heard are only a taste of the conversations we've had this season. There were simply too many to feature on a finale episode like this. So I'd like to encourage you to listen to the full episodes and other episodes in season two, if you haven't done so already. These can be accessed on the IBSC website or your favorite podcast platform. Why don't you hit subscribe and maybe even leave us a review or a rating. We thank all our guests this season for their contributions to these conversations. And we are so grateful to you for listening, for learning and for giving your all every day to teach and care for the boys at your school. We'll be back in mid-September with season three. So look forward to that. But for now, keep safe and keep well.